Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hello, leaders. This is Lily. And today we have the honor of having Dr. Richard Shear with us. As we know, people are a product of their times. Their actions and influences grow from what they have seen during their formative years. Richard Shear's formative years were shaped by considerations of what the Holocaust said about humanity. A child of the 50s, these early lessons of life began to shape a lifelong philosophy of making a difference. His chosen course in life was the betterment of young children. As a school leader, Richard championed the uncomfortable question for many. What if failure were not an option? His actions and personal relationships have led to the creation of programs that have influenced the lives of numerous people. Creating the most effective anti-dropout program in Long Island's history, he has gone on to advise school districts and universities on a myriad of programs for young people. He is the author of books on life enhancement, school reform, and parenting. He is a leader in the area of leadership education and continues to serve as a life coach for numerous leaders in education and in industry. So welcome, Dr. Richard Shear. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Lily. Great. Um, we are so happy to have you on our podcast. So as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership, and we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, so my first question is, what inspired you to choose leadership as a career path? Well, I almost stumbled into it. I had taught for 12 years and uh, enjoyed teaching very, very much. And I was offered a job in another school district to be a student activities coordinator, which was uh, quasi-teaching and quasi-administrative, and um, was able to effectively change the dynamic of a student population. Uh, we were at Hewlett High School, and our students were growing up a little bit too fast. They were doing things and that they weren't necessarily mostly uh, ready for. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to bring back an old-fashioned school experience, a homecoming, dances. Through certain um, innovative techniques, we were able to get a half of the school to come to the, that year's dance. And from that, we actually built a leadership program uh, within the school. And uh, students who are graduates of that leadership program in Hewlett in the early 90s are running a lot of New York City right now. They wow. run a major newspaper, yoga clinics, uh, heads of sports and certain networks. I don't want to use their names, but they were right. graduates of that leadership program. But my basic background is academic and education. So it went to the um, next level of saying, okay, uh, got the student activities program and uh, we did major changes in the culture of the school through that, but it still comes down to academics. And therefore I had to uh, make the next move into leadership positions within schools. 
So do they still have that leadership program? Again, I, you know, I haven't been in that school for over 20 years, but I don't believe they do. I think uh, finding leadership teachers is a, is a rarity. It's very difficult. So um, if you don't have the right person in the right job, um, programs tend to fade. One of the leadership concepts that, that's very, very important, I've never seen a good person who couldn't fix a broken program, and I've never seen a, a great program that couldn't be ruined by the wrong person. Right. Well, I think we've all experienced that. Sure. <laughs> but it was amazing foresight of you, for you to see the importance of that. Well, actually, I wasn't a creator. What happened was the Hewlett um, Woodmere School Board of the 1980s saw this and created the program and then recruited me to help do it. So how would you describe your leadership style? Basically, what I try to do is, is take a note of the, of the particular situation, what's working for people, what's not working for people, uh, do that through conversations, uh, through inquiry, um, and then try to figure out why something's not working and come up, come up with out-of-the-box solutions. So I don't know if there's really um, a title for that type of leadership, but what it really based on is finding how to best serve people. So it's a service, a service sure. leadership. The, the idea is to leave every place you go a little bit better you having been there. And that's something I've always taught students. Even last year, uh, I had uh, the honor to serve as an interim principal last year at Connecticut High School. And um, that's what I taught the student leaders. Leave every place you go a little bit better for you having been there. Okay, great. Which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Well, it's funny. I came across this one fairly late in my, uh, my career, but it was stated by Earl Warren, Earl Warren was the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, and in 1953, he led the decision to integrate the American public schools. The prior Supreme Court uh, of 1896 had created uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was separate but equal. And of course, it wasn't equal. Uh, minority students did not go to equal schools. Earl Warren actually had been a conservative Republican and had run for vice president on a Republican ticket, didn't win. Um, and when he became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, uh, he kind of shocked people by leading um, the the case to integrate the American public schools. And he said something very interesting towards the end of his life. He said, um, I've never made an important decision in my life without catching hell for it. So one of the things that leaders get caught by surprise is they think they're going to change the world for the better and be put on people's shoulders and... Um, carried around. That happens rarely. More often than not, when you change the world and you change culture, you shake people up, you can make some pretty significant enemies. Do you ever wonder why that happens? Because I, I find that to be true. Uh, well, one of the things that I do these days is I write, and I write books, and I study the human condition. And um, culture is a very, very interesting thing. One of the things about people is we, we tend to believe certain concepts that just aren't true. For example, one thing leaders learn is if you tell someone that a certain situation should be done and they disagree with you and then you prove that you were right, well, common sense says, well, then they would agree and say, well, yes, you were right all along. It's actually the opposite. You actually make them angrier when you prove them wrong. It's a concept based on cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. Cognitive dissonance says to the human brain, uh, you can't hold two competing thoughts at the same time. So if someone says, I'm intelligent and I'm right, 
and then you go prove them wrong, well, that's a problem because you're, you're challenging the cognitive dissonance of the brain. That also happens with cultures. When you try to change a culture, uh, you will find it wants to revert back. I, I, I kind of laugh because I see things in literature that often have parallels in real life. In the, in the, in the Lord of the Rings, the ring wanted to go back to its evil master and it was always seeking to get back to the master. I found that's true of cultures. You can come into a school district and want to change the culture and create a, a leadership team that changes the culture. However, that culture always wants to go back to what it once was, and it's, it's a remarkable thing to see. You'll see boards of education which um, create a culture change. Almost everyone's different 10 years later, but the culture has, has remained. And so what leaders have to fight is, is culture uh, that stops progress and then also the most important thing is wants to revert back to the old system that's really interesting and you spoke to something about um being right right as human beings we 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 always want to be right <laughs> actually great leaders can know when they're wrong because the issue becomes uh, a great leader has to be able to say gee i screwed that one up what was my thinking process where did it where did it derail or when they introduce a concept a minor change may have to take place along the way. In order to be able to do that, you have to be able to say, gee, I, I kind of screwed that one up. But that, that comes to self-esteem, it right. comes to security, and that's um, another aspect of why people go into leadership. Some go in to make the world a better place, and some go in to meet their own personal needs. And when they go in for their own personal needs, they're less self-reflective, mm -hmm. uh, and it's much more difficult for them to uh, be able to say, gee, I really didn't handle that one very well. Right. You know, you spoke to something, too, about culture. Mm -hmm. It tends to go back to, I guess, the, their comfort zone or area. Exactly. Right? The way of operating. Right. And and I wonder if that has to do with fear. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm a big proponent of uh, there are two major emotions that human beings run by. They run on love and they run on fear. And when a leader makes decisions based on love, they invariably make the right decision. And when they make a decision based on fear, they invariably make the wrong one. And in fact, where the entire American educational system has gone off the rails is the entire reform movement has been based on fear. In 1983, under the Reagan administration, there was a report called The Nation at Risk, and it had some devastating quotes about our educational framework and what had to be changed. So since 1983, we've been undergoing uh, school reform based on uh, fear. And uh, I wrote in the book, one of the books I've written, Screwed Up School Reform, Fixed America's Broken Promise. One of the things I, I wrote in that book is that invariably, if you work on a system from fear, you will fail. And I said that the system will fail. I said this a few years ago when I wrote the book. And right now what you're seeing is you're seeing the um, school reform movement collapsing around it. The evaluation of teachers based on student test performance was statistically invalid and unreliable and shouldn't have never been done. So that's been derailed. Um, the Common Core has some very good elements in it, but it's got some terrible elements in it, and it's never adjusted because the people who created it didn't come back and say, well, number one, if a child doesn't get it, what do we do about it? Number two, if it's 180 school days in a given year and you put in too many lessons, what do we do about that? So the Common Core is highly flawed. Uh, it was a good concept, but it became very, very flawed, and it's failed. 
screwed up school reform, fixing America's broken promise was about how do we really fix schools and we really fix schools based on the concept of love. If we do the right thing for our children and grandchildren, neighbors' children, and each other, we will be fine. We will know what to do for our children. If we come from a fear base, we won't be fine. The other book, uh, the first one that I wrote, The Secrets of Life and Death, Answers for Your Journey Through This Life, it deals with spiritual concepts that, that drive human beings and uh, really became, the first part was an investigation of concepts of life after death that we read about. Mm-hmm. What do universities say about it? What does the University of Arizona, what does uh, the University of Virginia say about that concept? second part of the book deals with the concept that, okay, if, if that's answered in our mind, the second question would be then, well, what are we supposed to be doing during our lifetime? And the answer is, of course, service to others, um, making the world a better place. And the third part of the book deals with, okay, I got to get up on Monday morning and go to work. <laughs> what a good conscious of life. So that's more of a life study. And it's funny because as as you were talking about that, I thought about how it speaks to our purpose in life and the legacy yes. that we leave. There's overwhelming research by one um, gentleman named Dr. Raymond Moody, who interviewed over 2,000 people who were pronounced dead and then came back to life. And he interviewed them and said, well, what happened in the interlude? And invariably, they heard there was a report about a life review, mm-hmm. that this being of light would do a life review with you. So what if this is correct? Right. What, what is your life review going to say about what you did with these children? And will you be proud of it? Right. Will you be proud of the work you've done? Um, so, yes, I do think a big part of, of my beliefs about education come into the – and all leadership come into the concept of how do we make this world be a better place. It's a great practice in self-reflection. That's, that's Thank you. Great. Okay, so what type of leader are you inspired by and why? Someone who makes the world a better place and might not necessarily uh, you know, get the credit for it. The quiet leaders who go into schools and do their job and are there for children. It's usually the, the people who just go in there quietly and make a difference in life. They're not looking for accolades. They're looking to make a difference. Well, it, it really comes down to um, everyone likes to be noticed and appreciated mm-hmm. and, and celebrated. I, I mm-hmm. once in my uh, life was recognized as the Nassau County Teacher of the Year, and it was pretty cool to stand there and get that kind of recognition. That is pretty cool. <laughs> but um, that's not why I did the things I did. Mm-hmm. I did the things I did to make my students' lives better. Okay. So, what does it mean to you to have a good team? And how do you build one or establish one? Uh, that's, that's a very interesting question for education. One of the comparisons I made when I, when I would go into a building as a principal, you have a cabinet, chair people who are existing, pre-existing. Mm-hmm. And when the, the next president of the United States comes in, they get to pick their cabinet. And they still struggle with loyalty and being on the same page. So can you imagine when you're a new principal and you come in and you're non-tenured and uh, your cabinet is tenured, and then they know the culture, and they know what's best, and here you are coming and trying to change their world. It's a very difficult struggle to build a team for a school leader uh, for that reason. You're lucky when you find really good people around you. You're lucky when you find people who will give you the ability to make a change and, and trust that your vision is correct. But it's also best to be inclusive. But again, leadership plays a trick. I'll give you an example. When I was the principal of Locust Valley High School, we were looking at the International Baccalaureate Program, 
And uh, there had been a school improvement plan created by my predecessor, which included it. And the superintendent and the Board of Education liked the idea of the IB program. The faculty did not. So what we did is uh, we I took a trip with a group of people, uh, six teachers. We went to Toronto, and it was kind of, kind of memorable because we flew you know, to Toronto right after 9-11 when, mm. when people were a little scared. Mm-hmm. And we studied the IB program. And we came back to Locust Valley, and we sat down, and we debated the Advanced Placement Program, the International Baccalaureate Program, which one we liked better, what was better for kids. And there were there were concerns on, on both areas. So I finally said to the team, here's the question. If your child came to Locust Valley High School, would you like them to study Advanced Placement or International Baccalaureate? And the vote was all seven people said the IB program. So I said, okay, then we have a faculty meeting, and we tell the faculty what our findings are. And uh, as the principal, I let the teachers do the lead in discussing what we had seen. And then we basically voted as a faculty, and the faculty voted to go forward with the IB program. Years later, if you talk to the people who were involved, including some who were on the trip, they'll say it was authoritarian, top-down for me. Mm-hmm. And it, it became uh, an, another interesting study of human nature that they had forgotten the discussions in the principal's office. They had forgotten the faculty meeting. They just, yes, I was an advocate for it, but so were the rest of them. You know, one of the things that spoke to me is is the fact that you ask questions of, you know, your team to get a feel for where they're at. Then that gives you a guide to where you should lead them. It's always, everything's a balancing act because on one hand, um, you need to consult your team. You need to get their thoughts. Otherwise, you'll make some reckless decisions and you'll get yourself burnt. On the other hand, there's always going to be uh, people in your team who are going to want to take over. And uh, they're going to want to steer people in their direction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people come from a fear base. So if you come from a base of love and they come from a base of fear, it's going to be difficult to work together. So, yes, you have to listen and you have to really create to the best of your ability an environment in which they're not afraid of you because otherwise people won't give you the appropriate feedback. But you also have to lead and you have to know when to listen and when to act. Tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life. Sitting with us is my son, and uh, he was he was the great challenge. Um, David was um, a micro preemie, and at one point he was one pound, one ounce. And doctors didn't give us much hope or belief that he would ever come home. If he ever did come home, that he would be healthy. And so I picked up a book on prematurity, and it had all these terrible um, aspects. So I threw the book in the garbage, and I said, that will not be our outcome. We created a a belief of positive. He came home, and he's uh, this terrific young man now, a graduate of Johns Hopkins, and and healthy and well and all these great things. And I do believe that you don't accept the the hand you're dealt. Believe in good outcomes, and um, you attract them to you. So one of the things I've always believed in is not accepting failure, not accepting uh, that this has to be the way it is. When I took that into schools, uh, that became um, the belief that I got from the movie Apollo 13, where the head of flight control says, failure is not an option. Mm. Um, Because in schools, failure is an option. And that 
isn't even thought about. We expect a certain amount of kids not to graduate. We'd expect a certain amount of kids to drop out. We expect a certain amount of kids not to be able to live up to their potential. I believe that schools should not adopt that. It should be that failure is not an option, that 100% of our kids can graduate, and I actually did that. In 2002 at Locust Valley, we had an 84% graduation rate. We were spending as much per pupil as almost anybody in the country, and 16 out of every 100 kids did not graduate. And no one really cared. And they didn't really care because they probably weren't the children of board members and PTA members yeah. uh, of the advantaged members of the community. But I cared. And I had pre previously been the principal of Long Beach High School, which had a very good alternative high school called Nike. And I wanted to set something like that up at Locust Valley. And uh, because I really... I don't want to say they didn't care about these kids, but it wasn't on their number one agenda. I couldn't get the funding for it. So I thought out of the box. And I said, well, what do I, you know, what's really wrong? Why are these kids not graduating? Um, and they're usually what they are is, uh, I used the term, emotionally unavailable for learning. Their lives are difficult at home or personally, and they're emotionally unavailable for learning. And they do not drop out. That's an incorrect phrase. They fade out. First, they have attendance problems. And then because they have attendance problems, they are difficult in class and in the school. And then no one really wants them around because they're a pain in the neck. And eventually when they go, no one misses them and they're kind of glad they're gone. So what was missing? And what I came up with is what was missing was um, there was not one significant adult in their life who was, who was changing their lives. We were all providing service, but these kids needed more than service. They needed a mentor, a mother. I called it a mother at first. I changed the term to a mentor, but they needed one significant adult. And so what I did was um, BOCES, when you send kids out to BOCES because they are discipline problems, it's a pretty significant uh, price to the community and to the school. And if you bring them back, you save a lot of money, but you can't bring them back because they're paying the neck in the school. So what I did is I convinced the superintendent that if I could fund the program and wouldn't cost the district any money, could I have my program? Of course, if you can fund the program, go ahead and do it. What I did is I brought three kids back from BOCES who had been discipline issues, and I took one specific teacher, and I made her their mentor. And we added 20 other kids to the program, regular mainstream program. They go to the class. They do everything they normally would have done, but during their free time, during lunch, they go to the mentor. And I uh, picked the right person to be their mentor, and she would be on the phone with the parents. If they were in trouble, she'd be in the dean's office uh, with them. She became their mother in the building. And I picked the right person, and she was terrific, and she still is terrific. And because of that, since 2002, every child that's ever been in that program has graduated on time. You know, and as you were speaking about that program, just what resonated was um, love. The, the, exactly yes. what you talked about. Yes, these kids go into the program. The, the teacher's name is Gabrielle Harrington, and they go into her. She won't take any nonsense. She's tough. She loves them. And they know she loves them, and she, they know she won't take any nonsense. And they, the kids know that she wants them to have the best possible life. You get unintended side effects of everything you do as a leader. Sometimes they're actually good unintended side effects. And what we didn't realize is we created a, a culture within the program. It's called PASS program, P-A-S-S, 
in Locust Valley. And the culture within the program is that the older kids say to the younger kids, don't do that. Those are mistakes I made. Mm -hmm. And the older kids became mentors to the younger kids. The program's terrific. I've uh, gone around the country, uh, spoken at a number of New York State School Board uh, conventions, because the program works. It's a very simple program. There are districts uh, that have used it. The most successful district outside of Locust Valley that used it was a, a district outside of Buffalo called Lindenville. And I think it had the uh, the toughest demographics in the area, but it had the number one graduation rate after they used it. Uh, Hopog uses it now also. So the funny part is I will go to a convention and I will present it and uh, everyone's excited about it, but very few people actually implement it. And that's oftentimes the way it goes. Yeah, it's, one, it's one of the understandings yeah. is, um, and I can be a very good motivational speaker, and I'm very excited about it, and um, I explain it comes from the concept of um, failure is not an option. And I also said to them, back in the early 90s when I was a student activities coordinator at Euler High School, I was involved in an event called Cabaret Night. And what we did is we raised money for Memorial Sloan Kettering we would purchase some gift for the pediatric unit, and we would also take 10 of our student leaders on uh, a visit to Sloan Kettering, and we would do a blood drive. Because I was involved in this event, um, Norma Rosenberg, the the um, head of the Laura Rosenberg Foundation, invited me to an annual dinner that they would have, and I heard Dr. Richard O'Reilly, who was the um, head of pediatrics at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and he was speaking to a group of several hundred, and he said to us, I know what you're thinking when you look at me. He said, you're thinking, how can I work with kids with cancer for a living? And his answer was, because in 1981, we were saving 12%. This was the early 90s, and he said, now we're saving over 80%, and one day we'll save all of them. So I was going to ask you what your greatest successes were and how it shaped your life and the life of those around you. And I think you hit on that unless there's another something else you want to share with us. Oh, that, that's good. that was good. I can, I can, I can talk about <laughs> I, that. I thought that was fantastic. Now, what would you tell a new leader who is discouraged about their work, their working climate or culture? I recall, uh, and this is, a, this is a common thing because I've been hired as a consultant to go into school districts and train principals. And um, changing schools, changing anything with human beings is very, very, very difficult. You have to be patient. You have to be smart. You have to create um, a very clear philosophy for yourself to operate, to make decisions by. And if you can do those kinds of things, um, eventually you will be able to make change. Sometimes it has to come in small snips at a time, mm -hmm. but... It's worth it. It's just, it's frustrating. It's not the job for the average person because there's, um, I, I make it, I make the analogy to baseball. It's, uh, you know, guy goes to the Hall of Fame and he makes out seven out of 10 times. Well, when you're a school leader, you're going to have those kinds of difficulties, but the great ones hang in there. Sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Yeah. Right? yeah and, 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 and the bad guys win once in a while. That, that happens. And, uh, you know, that's a hard one to learn, but the bad guys do win. It's not television where the good guy comes out the winner every time. The bad guys win once in a while, and uh, you have yeah. to still move on. So many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. Okay, what does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Well, I've retired from full-time education, and I still do fill in schools here and there, but I am uh, now 
adapted to a new life. I am a, a writer. Um, I'm a life coach. And it's funny because uh, what winds up happening is um, when people find me. I don't advertise. I don't really even have a card. They just uh, find out from others that I've helped uh, turn lives around. That's a different kind of life. Uh, it can be uh, very solitary because mm-hmm. um, writing a book can isolate you. So you need to get out more often and do that. I'm working now as a partner because I'm writing uh, screenplays with my son, who's a writer. And that's that's uh, an interesting thing to work as a team mm-hmm. when you write. I am, yeah, I am watching the leadership unfold in America. I'm seeing basically a country that's, that's really not happy. Mm-hmm. And, and so they're looking for other answers. So you see the extremes of, of Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump coming out. You know, Lilia just recently wrote a book called The Better Parent. And what that book was about was 60 tips I've given parents over the 40 years I've been in education. And it was, and it really came out of watching the New Hampshire primary. There's a heroin epidemic in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a very rural state, uh, good schools. You would, the last place you think you're going to find a heroin epidemic is in New Hampshire. Um, so again, being a, a lifelong learner and adapting, I said, oh, what's happening there? There's a, there's a depression among our young people. And as a consequence, they turn to the wrong answers like heroin. The other thing, though, is, is parents are getting caught blindsided by social media. Things happen uh, at a rapid rate. Information um, dis- disbursement is, is fantastically quick. So heroin can make it into a, a rural community and spread among the young people before parents even realize what's happened. And at that point, it could be too late. So the better parent comes out of my lifelong learning saying, okay, how do, how do I contribute back? Uh, one of the things I, I stress over and over and over again with parents is um, communication and relationship. Um, you have to be your child's first resource when they have a problem. And that can't be built today. It's got to be built over time that your child knows that, okay, if they've done the wrong thing, you'll be angry. You reserve the right to jump up and down, but then you'll solve the problem with them. And that's crucial information to be given to a parent. Create the relationship where you are your child's first call when there's a problem. You know, Richard, I'm sitting here and just listening to how much you do love because a lot of us watch the primary, but you took action when you saw a need and just sharing your experiences and thoughts in this in this book, The Better Parent. Oh, so, thank you. That's, that's an so, ebook on Amazon. Okay. Which brings us to um, the next question is, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? Well, they should read my books. Yes. <laughs> the Secrets I of agree. Life and Death and Spirit <laughs> of School Reform. I, there's a, a charming book that, uh, that one of the best principals out in Suffolk County, and unfortunately she's retiring. Her name's Kathy Nolan. She was going to give a gift to her staff and they asked me, um, what what should she give? And I, I suggested the book Small Miracles. And it's about a concept called synchronicity. Synchronicity is the concept that things happen beyond a reasonable chance. And it's these, all these little stories about miracles that happened that were beyond reason. That, that just couldn't have happened, but it did. It's uplifting, and it lets people know that the universe is a good place. And our world should be uh, loving, caring place where people can smile and, and, and uh, we can help each other avoid pain. What we've done is we've turned it into, again, something quite different 
Um, and I think it's because we come too often from fear. So leaders that come from fear lead us down fear-based paths. And that's what's been running the country. It's been running the cities. It's been running the schools. That's got to change. They also read good to great. What every company who went from good to great did is they had the right leader. The great leader wants the outcome of making the company, the school better, making the people around them better at what they do. And if accolades come, that's great, but that's not the driving force. Thank you for that. So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you well, have? Again, last year I was an interim principal, and that was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a, an agreement with the Island Park schools where they only have one administrator in each building. So one of their, if one of their administrators is out at a conference or absent, I come in and cover the building. So I still get to be around kids mm-hmm. and uh, faculty and, and still contribute a little bit. Um, doing a lot of writing. And uh, like I said, at this point, now I have a new writing partner and my son, who's a, a terrific writer. And what we're finding is that we come from two different approaches when we write, so it's worked quite well. I'm very much about story, and my son's very much about the character. And uh, I'm constantly thinking about my next book. Like I said, I just published The Better Parent. Uh, and I'm actually holding a couple of them back. One of the things I was about to publish a year and a half ago, but... Uh, like a lot of people have to fight perfectionism. Uh, it's, it's something we struggle with. But uh, I was writing a number of uh, seven-minute self-help books. In other words, I'm going to tell you what you need to know in seven minutes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one was seven minutes to being a great parent. One was seven minutes to uh, understanding your teenager. Uh, one was seven minutes to enjoying life. Uh, so I'm, uh, that'll be my next project when I get back into that type of writing. That's, that's a very interesting concept. Because sometimes that's all we have. <laughs> exactly. We don't, we don't have the time to read a 180-page self-help. If you got the answer, tell me and let me go on my life. And that was the idea of the seven-minute self-help books. And they're called Seven Minutes um, 2. And uh, I'll probably be putting them out in the next year or so. So that's interesting because as a writer, you still have to be disciplined. So, you know, to maintain that discipline, what do you do? Do you um, have a calendar? What's the thought process? One of the nice things uh, about being retired is freedom. There are certain jobs in school leadership where the job's pretty much assigned. You're the assistant principal. You're dealing with the buses. You're dealing with the discipline. You're dealing with the attendance. You're dealing with very defined roles. When you're the principal, you have some of that. But you also have some flex time. So do I observe a class? Do I plan a program? Do I meet with a parent? Um, so it, it, that that skill is also a outgrowth of being a principal where you have to sit down at times and make um, what I almost call a checklist of, of the things you want to do to grow the school or grow the program. And I do the same thing now in my life. So I do it by checklist. I, I, I put things down and then I check them when they're done, and uh, that's pretty much how I keep myself driven. Okay, so many ed- um, educational leaders put in long hours. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give about maintaining balance? Well, one of the things I teach principals when I train them is if you, uh, unfortunately, have died on the job, you will die with your in-basket full. In other words, it's never empty. The in-basket is always full. There's never enough things that you can do as a leader. Uh, you need to be everywhere at all times. People expect you in the hallways. People expect you to on the phone. People expect you to be at the meeting. People expect you to be in the classroom all at the same exact time. So the first part of it is you can't do that. 
so you have to understand that you have to ration your time correctly. Second part is, um, when I was a young principal, I would go to meetings with, uh, veteran principals. We, we would have organizations and I saw a high degree of them were divorced. Uh, they had spent so much time away from home that their, their marriage fell apart. So there was a certain point where I would say, okay, it's, I could be here for the next five hours, but I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. So at one point you just leave and it's really what you have to do. You've got stuff to do. You always have stuff to do. Being a high school principal is like being the mayor of a small city. You have a sports program going on. You have a theater program going on. You have academic program. You've got building and planned facility issues. It never stops. So you do have to say at one point, okay, that's it. The other thing you have to watch is your health because um, what I also talk to principals about is um, how unhealthy the job can be. It's not only stressful. Um, the hours are ridiculous because – High school principals, for example, pretty much at my desk most days by 10 to 7, 7 o'clock in the morning. And they expect you at the 7, 8 o'clock board meeting at night. And so now you're getting home at 11.30 and you have to be back at your desk at a quarter to 7. And it takes a toll over you uh, if you don't watch it. But it's almost impossible to watch it, too. All right. It takes and a I, lot of self-discipline. I, and I know for me, um, I was a director at a school and, and the, the hours were extremely long. And I think part of what helped me uh, maintain that balance is, is having a coach, sure. you know, to, <laughs> that I can vent to, what exactly. do I do and how do I do this? And this happened, you know, that helped me tremendously. Even yes, as a veteran leader, I still would have a network of people who I would um, call and bounce ideas off of. Sometimes I outside of the oh, work environment. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, see, part of the problem with, leadership today is we overwhelm capacity human beings can do x and we don't accept that so we we take a person as the president of the united states and we overwhelm them we take a person as a superintendent of schools we overwhelm them we take a person as a principal and we overwhelm them one of the reasons the past program survived and thrived at locust valley is when i created the mentor my job was to keep her from being overwhelmed uh, against her own best nature because she would have taken in 50 kids. So what I wound up doing is we had a conversation once and she asked me, um, should I do groups? I said, if you think that would be a good idea, you can meet with the kids in groups, but it's your call. And she looked at me in curiosity and said, no, I picked the right person. That was the first part of my job. Now my job is to get out of your way and protect you so that you don't get overwhelmed so you can continue to do your job. That's a problem. And it, it's going to take uh, a rethinking of leadership. We overwhelm leaders to the point where they can't think creatively. They, they have no time for free thought. And there's no solution right now in our society because we all talk a good game. But culturally, we value working people to the point of uh, being overwhelmed. We value it. We we brag about it. Oh, I worked an 80-hour week. I worked a 90-hour week without realizing that there's a cost to that. There's a cost in your health, there's a cost in your family life, and it's going to be even a bigger cost than the fact that you can't do your job as well. Well, this is the reason why we're doing this podcast, because we value people, exactly. and that's what a leader does. Um, and it seems, you know, in, in your concern for this mentor, you valued her, which is what a true leader does. Well, when, when I would go to other school districts to set up this past program, 
that was the hardest bridge. Once they accepted the concept of a mentor, they had a very difficult time in not assigning the person classes as well. They, their instinct was always to overwhelm, overwhelm the teacher. And I would fight them. And in one district, I set it up. They, they just didn't listen. You know, it's funny. They had done research on me because I had done a presentation for Eastern Suffolk BOCES. Um, basically told them we took the graduation rate from 84% in 2002 to by about 2006, we got it to 99, 99.5. We couldn't get to the 100%. We had this one kid who would graduate. And then by 2008, we reached 100%. But, but basically, we went from 84% to 99% in four years. And the it was an assistant superintendent in the district who heard the presentation and couldn't believe us telling the truth. So she called Locust Valley and talked to people there and found it was all true. They brought me in to set the program up in their district, and then they didn't follow what I told them to follow. They gave the teacher, the mentor, three classes, three special ed classes, as well as being the mentor. She was an exceptional talent. She made it work. The kids still graduated. The program was that good, but they overwhelm, we overwhelm people, and um, there's a price to be paid, and, and it shows up. And most of the poor decisions we make as leaders we make us we're overtired. That's true. So we've come to the end. I have one more question for sure. you, Richard. Um, if you can go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Uh, well, to work out more often, <laughs> take time for myself. I had a lot of success. Again, when I taught, I was a teacher, a county teacher of the year. And when I, and I decided to become a principal, I was a principal within two, three years. So I think I should have been a touch less arrogant, a touch less, uh, maybe more than a touch. The other aspect that I probably, uh, I point this out now to a leader, to the school leaders is when I would have someone who's an opponent, uh, who was fighting against programs I was trying to create, I always tried to bring them back to me, thinking that they'd eventually see the reason that I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm a, I'm a nice person and so on. They never come back. And so when I tell leaders now is to understand that these people are not on your side. You always think that you can bring them back to the fold. That's when I first discovered that even when you're right, they get angrier at you when you're right. Mm-hmm. So if you prove to them, well, my cabinet at Locust Valley, when we were doing the International Baccalaureate Program, it had all been agreed to, and it's not a cheap program to start. And all of a sudden, my cabinet walks in one morning and says to me, we we met, which was always interesting. You met without the principal. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and what did you decide? We decided there should only be 12 students in the program the first year. And again, uh, when I talked about my being arrogant, I, I should have handled them kinder. I just said, no, we, we're not going to go that way. We spent a lot of money, and we are open enrollment. So we're going to have as many kids in the program as want to be in the program. I should have said it probably kinder um, and gentler. But we did enroll, and we had, um, instead of 12 kids in the program, we had uh, – 28 students get the full IB certificate, and we had, I think, over 40 students get at least one IB course in. So if I listed the cabinet, we would have restricted it to 12. They weren't going to come around, and when mm-hmm. I proved that I was right, mm-hmm. didn't matter. They're still angry. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I, yeah, I want to thank you to be for being so authentic and, and just humble 
Um, so thank you so much. And Richard, I also want to thank you for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to our website at masterleadership.org to get show notes for this episode and to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of our exceptional educational leadership coaches that are featured on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.